passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. How many of you guys have a hard time watching the news nowadays? Uh, yeah, a couple of, yeah, uh, it's, it's sort of crazy. I mean, who would have thought we would have this war in Europe? The stuff between Russia and Ukraine, and even this morning, I read this morning, now they're talking about the possibility that Russia may use tactical nuclear weapons. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that nightmares are made up. And then we have the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and who knew, who knows who blew that thing up? And I hope it wasn't us. <laughs> you know, that's another kind of thing that brings about world war. And we also have just the weather. This Hurricane Ian, the incredible amount of destruction it's brought to Florida and the Carolinas. The news is not encouraging. At times like this, people sometimes come up to me and they say, Pastor, do you think we're in the, the end times? And I often say, well, it really depends what you mean by the end times. Because tactically, since the resurrection of Christ, we've been in the end times. Uh, now, do you mean, do you think I'm, that I think Christ is going to come back next week? If that's what you mean by that, well, maybe, uh, maybe not. But one thing I do know, that we're closer to the end than we were last week. That part I, I can't be sure about. Now, the Bible talks about that in the end times, there'll be a person who will arise, who will try and bring peace and organization across the planet. But while the person looks like some kind of a savior, the truth is that they are an enemy of God and his people. The Bible calls this person the Antichrist. In the, in the letters of John, John talks about the Antichrist four times. Let me read for you two verses that talk about him. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. And in chapter 4, verse 3, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already, which, by the way, means anybody who is not confessing Jesus Christ as God, no matter what religion that is, it is the spirit of the Antichrist. So note to self, only one way to heaven. But what John says in these letters is that while there, are one, while there will be one great and final Antichrist at the end of time with a capital A to his name, there will be many antichrists before that time with a lower A in their name because the spirit of the antichrist is already in this world. There'll be times where rulers will rise up and seem to galvanize people behind them and they're committed to the destruction of God's people. Well, this morning as we continue in our study in 1 Samuel, we're going to go to a time actually a thousand years before Jesus in the book of 1 Samuel, where one with the spirit of the Antichrist rose up. He seemed like he provided all the answers that people were looking for, but the truth was he was out for the destruction of God's very people. 
So if you're wondering where we are, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to pick up in verse 6. And one of the lessons we'll learn in this chapter is the incredible danger of continuing in sin. When, when we know we're in sin and we refuse to repent of our sin and we continue in sin, sin permeates a person, it totally warps and it twists a person and destroys them and can actually turn them into someone who functions like the Antichrist himself. And we're going to learn about that as we go through this. Let's begin with a little bit of background. Remember for the last few weeks we've been following uh, David, the anointed king of God as he's been on the run. He's been a, a fugitive because the actual current reigning king, which is Saul, is committed to destroying him. And what we've seen for these past few weeks is David has been on the run. First, he ran down to the city of Nob once he left Gibeah because he realized there was no way to reconcile that relationship with Saul. In Nob, he actually lied, we saw this last week, to Ahimelech, the high priest, and ended up with some bread and Goliath's sword from that. Then he headed down to Gath, which is the enemy's territory, the, where, the, where Goliath came from in the land of the Philistines. He thought he'd hide out among the enemy, which turned out to be a terrible idea. He was very quickly caught and chained to the city gate and trampled on and almost lost his life. But thankfully, through God's grace, um, he was released. Then he went about 10 miles northeast to the cave desolate region of Adullam, and there he hid in a cave in the ground. And last week we studied what he was going through in that point, and he was repenting of trusting in his own lies, trusting in worldly strength like Goliath's sword, from trusting in his own schemes to bring about his future. He said, no, God, you're going to be the one who's going to have to fulfill your purposes for me. I'm trusting in you alone. And at that point, God began to work. We saw that God brought his family to him to encourage him. God eventually brought 400 men around him. And then he moved sort of across Israel and went to Moab, dropped his parents off in the land of Moab to have the king of Moab take care of them. He and his men stayed in a, in a fortress, a stronghold it's called, in the land of Moab for a while. And eventually the prophet Gad came to him and told him, no, you need to go back to Israel and face your future. And that's where he left, left off last week. He left and he went to the forest of Hereth, which means nothing to you until you realize where it's located. Dead smack in the center of Israel. Not just a little bit over the border, but <laughs> right smack in the center of the country. No place to run, no place to hide. Now, as we get to verse 6, where we're picking up today, the camera uh, stops zooming in on David and his life, and it pans up north to Gibeah, where Saul is. We find out what King Saul is up to at this time. And here's what we discover. Saul was at ease in Gibeah. It says, now Saul heard that David was discovered and about the men who were with him. As you look at the, the chronology on this story, this is actually just a slight flashback. What the discovery of David was, apparently Saul heard that David and his men were at that fortress in the land of Moab just over the Israelite border. And David and his men have been discovered. Saul has not heard from David or anything about David for quite a while. 
The last time Saul knew about David was back in chapter 20, when David fled from Gibeah, went to Ramah to hide out with the prophet Samuel. If you remember what happened, Saul made four attempts on his life in a brief period of time while he was hiding out there. So we can assume that what's going to happen is now that Saul knows where David is again, it'll be more attempts on David's life that'll go on. But Saul is concerned. This time, David's not alone. It's not going to be easy pickings. There are 400 men with him. And Saul hears about those men. And he begins to chew on that in his mind. He says, obviously, I know what's going on. David is leading a rebellion. David is leading a coup. This is David's militia, and they are going to come and try and do a January 6th type of scenario, you know, storm the capital, take over the government, bump me off, and install David as king. This is what Saul imagines in his mind is happening. Now, is that the truth? Not, thank you, Tom, not at all. But that's Saul's fantasy, what he thinks is going on. Let's continue in uh, this verse, the sixth verse. It says, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height, that's important, with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing around him. In your mind, take a good look at Saul and where he's located. The intent of the text is to have us compare in our mind David at the beginning of this chapter and Saul at verse 6 in this chapter. Remember David when he ran and was hiding in the caves of Adullam? He was not on the height. He was hiding in a hole in the ground, not sitting in relaxation. He was crawling on his stomach into a cave, not holding a spear, signaling might and power. Now, he had lost Goliath's sword to the Philistines, David, at least at first, was all alone. Yet here was Saul on top of Mount Gibeah, at ease, looking over his kingdom, surveying his greatness, surrounded by his servants. You see the contrast going on here? David begins with absolutely nothing, besides hiding in that cave, and Saul is in comfort and ease. Now we know that 400 men eventually did come to David, but there's still a contrast here. What kind of men do you think were around King Saul? The shakers, the movers, people of significance, people of money, wealth, power, fame. But what kind of men were around David? We learned this last week. Look what the text says. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were about 400 men. The people around David were the social rejects, the riffraff of society, the nobodies, the, the broken. Do you see the contrast between these two men and their positions and the men around them? Totally different. While it looks like on the outside, 
that King Saul is in the favorable position. King Saul has it all together with wealth and status and power. As we continue, we're going to get a window into his inner world where we get a very different picture of what is actually going on. Now, let's begin to look at his inner world. There's a little bit of uh, just teasing out some of the details we'll have to do as we unpack this section. Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Now, I want to stop right there. The servants, uh, the people in his cabinet who work around him. Do you notice they all come from one tribe? How many tribes are there? Twelve tribes. Yet he has only chosen people to work for him who come from one tribe. People who are related by family. People who are his friends. For Paul, or for Saul, it didn't matter if you were qualified for the job. What mattered was that you were part of his tribe and you were part of his inner circle. If you were part of his inner circle, then you had the job. He chose his cabinet not on what was based, not on what was best for the country in the way of leadership, but on people that were best for him. This is called politics, folks, isn't it? That's what Saul is. He's showing favoritism. And if you're following along in your outline, I put this down for you so you wouldn't forget. Saul was guilty of nepotism. He gave positions of leadership not to the qualified, but to his friends. That's why you don't see anyone from other tribes around him. Now, the, the story continues as we get a window into Saul's inner world. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. There's a lot in here. Let me unpack this. Uh, uh, first thing I want to do is teach you a little Hebrew. Now, I don't usually teach you Hebrew, but I think this a little bit of Hebrew would be helpful for this chapter. You notice how he addresses David. Not by name. He calls him the son of Jesse. Why does he do that? In Hebrew, if you want to be disrespectful to someone, if you want to make little of someone, you don't use their name. You call them just the son of their father. You're of no significance. So I have to refer to you as the son of your father. In English, we would say, you little twerp. And that's essentially what Saul is saying about David. Will that little twerp actually give you fields? Will he give you vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Of course, the answer is no, because none of you would be qualified for the job. <laughs> Remember, they only got their job because they're related to Saul. David would not give you those things. And here we also discover a little bit more of Saul's leadership. What he does is he uses position of influence to buy the favor of the people working for him. He bribes them, doesn't he? Gives them gifts to keep them in his hip 
pocket, working for him, giving them positions of power, giving them lands, giving them vineyards. So everybody loves him, even though they don't, they don't really like him because he's you know, not a good leader. More government corruption is what it is. If you're following along, here's the point of your bulletins. Saul bought loyalty by gifting property and possessions to gain favor. Now he says, after all the property and possessions that I've gifted you guys, why are none of you telling me over the fact that my son made a covenant with David? We read about this covenant earlier. This is a, a promise between two friends. They were going to be loyal to one another before God. They were going to stand up for one another. And to the end, they were going to even take care of one another's children. Something would happen to one another. So you have this covenant, and he says, how could you guys not tell me about this after all the ways I've bribed you and all the things I've given you? And notice how he ends this. That my servant would lie in wait for me as of this day. Well, what we have here is Saul thinks there's a coup going on. That David is committed to overthrowing him and to assassinating him, to lie in wait for me. Now, none of that is actually taking place, but this is what Saul is believing in his own head. Here's what it is. Saul is being destroyed with paranoia. You ever seen people that get paranoid? Saul is consumed with paranoia. You wonder, why is he paranoid? Does he think that everybody is out to get him and out to kill him? Well, I'll tell you what I think. Saul has spent a lot of time planning and trying to kill David. Over a dozen times so far that have been unsuccessful. But when you constantly try to plan to kill somebody, what happens is it sort of pollutes your mind. And you start to think maybe everybody else is trying to plan to kill you. <laughs> because that is what you're doing. You're planning to kill them. So this is what's happened. The darkness of his plans against other people have come back to haunt him. And he's now paranoid completely. And here's the point here. Saul lived in paranoia. And his mind was filled with conspiracy theories. Because his evil thoughts against David had infiltrated all of his relationships. Now here's a lesson for us. What we put in our brains will determine the direction of our life. We must guard what we put into our minds and take captive to Christ the thoughts we ponder. Saul was filling his brain with lots of evil thoughts and it was, they were running out of control in his psyche. I'll give you an example of uh, the importance of this. When I was a freshman at college, went to a Christian school, and that's going to really shock you, and I, I tell you the story. Uh, freshman year, first week in the dormitories, and some upperclassmen said to myself and a couple other freshmen, hey, it's Friday night, do you want to go out with us and watch a midnight movie? We're like, oh, this is so cool. Upperclassmen actually want us to join them. <laughs> Little did we know. And so we get to the movie, and they, we bought your tickets. Oh, that is so nice. We get the tickets. I go into this midnight movie. I'm all excited about it. Well, it turned out it was a horror flick, and they didn't tell me. And so I'm taking it in, 
and I'm watching it. You know, I'm not expecting it to be what it is, and I did, grew up in a home where we didn't watch those kind of things. And I walked out of that movie theater literally shaking. Now, this is, this is the truth. I did not sleep through the night for the next two days because my mind is constantly filled with those horror scenes that I saw. And I'm walking around campus, and in every shadow I'm convinced there's a man with an ax waiting to chop off my head because that's what I filled my brain with. And so that determined all my relationships and how I filtered my world. This is what Saul has done. He's filled his mind with all kinds of evil, corruption, and murder, and now it has infiltrated the way he sees every other relationship in his life. That they're gonna be as evil to him as he has planned to be towards them, in particular with David. Now the scriptures say this, Whatever, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Only put into your brain things that are healthy, good, wholesome, true. The scriptures tell you, tell us these things, which really makes it hard to sometimes watch a lot of things in the media. Need I say more? And then this is another good one, 2 Corinthians 10.5. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, this is not necessarily talking about the things you put into your brain, but the things you're allowing your brain to chew on in its free time. Is it a thought that would be pleasing to Christ or not? And if it's not, we should say, okay, God, I need to repent of thinking that way. I need to repent of thinking those thoughts because I want my thoughts to be pleasing to Jesus. So what we have at this point is Saul is ranting. Saul is raving. Saul is filled with conspiracy theories and paranoia. And the people around him, at this point, they're sort of getting used to this. They just give him space. Because you know there's no reasoning with people like this. Because as soon as you say it's not true, that's exactly the kind of thing I was worried about. So they're giving him air. But you need to realize there are some people in this world who won't just give these paranoid people space, they'll take advantage of them and they'll use them for your evil, their evil deeds. And that's exactly what we have here from a man named Doeg the Edomite. We met him last week in one single verse. He was in the shadows watching the exchange between David and Ahimelech, the chief priest, when he came to Nob. So Doeg saw Ahimelech give David Goliath's sword and give him bread. And Doeg realizes this is an opportunity to take advantage of Saul's paranoia. Let's see what he does. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, Oh, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So Doeg says, Saul, you're right. This conspiracy theory of people trying to overthrow you and, and kill you, I have some evidence. I saw the son of Jesse, that little twerp, going to Ahimelech. 
And Ahimelech gave him a sword, and Ahimelech gave him bread, and inquired of God for him. Wait a minute. Last week, did we read about Ahimelech inquiring of God for David, that a mission to overthrow the king would be successful? Mm -mm. Doeg tells the truth, but then Doeg adds falsehood to the truth. Doeg has an agenda. He's telling Saul what Saul wants to hear to get him even more fired up. Folks, isn't that the way the media works a lot today? Don't they have an agenda? They tell you the truth, but then sometimes they add things to the news to get you even more fired up about these things. And that's exactly what is going on. We do not read in the last chapter, and we'll talk about this more, by the way, in, in, in a few minutes, of um, David asking Ahimelech to inquire of God for him, that should he attempt to overthrow the king. So here's a point for you. It says this, Don't be surprised when people add to a story to make it fit their agenda. Now, the other thing we need to know is Doeg was not just adding to the truth, but if you look carefully at this, he was holding back part of the truth. Because we know that last week, when David came to Ahimelech, Ahimelech at first was not really excited to see him. Because he was concerned there might have been a fallout between David and Saul. And then David lied. Remember this? He said, I'm on a top secret mission for King Saul. And Ahimelech trying to support the king, gave David bread and a sword to help him on what he thought was a top secret mission for Saul. But does Doeg tell King Saul that information? No, he holds back that information to shape his report in such a way that Saul will see conspiracy theory all the way around. See, he has an agenda, doesn't he? He's trying to get Saul fired up so he can manipulate him and use him towards an evil end. So if you're following along in your outline, that's the next point. Don't be surprised when people hold back parts of a story to make it fit their agenda. Saul is fired up. This guy, Ahimelech, the chief priest, he's, tried to, he's trying to be involved in this conspiracy theory. I have some final evidence on this. He's going to try and overthrow me. Now what should Saul do? Technically, according to the scripture, absolutely nothing. Because he only has one witness. You need to have more than one witness. You have to have two or three witnesses to even establish a charge. So if you're following along, don't always trust what people say unless there is more than one witness. Deuteronomy tells us this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Not a guilty verdict. But can you even bring a charge against a person? Because the truth is that sometimes people have an agenda, like Doeg. Sometimes people shape the news to try and get a response out of you with that news. So you need two or three 
people who are witnesses so you can see it from different angles so you find out what the real story was, is about. Not just what somebody wants you to think it was about. But Saul, well, let's just skip the law. Let's just skip what the Bible says on this one. He's committed to his own agenda. He's fired up. Now, in case you, you disagree and you think that maybe I'm wrong, that Doeg is just telling the truth and he's not shaping things, you need to know that David later writes Psalm 52. And in Psalm 52, he specifically accuses Doeg of shaping his report to be deceptive and get Saul fired up. Look what it says in Psalm 52. Speaking about Doeg, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of, of God endures all the day. Your tongue is plotting destruction. Like a sharp razor, you are a worker of deceit. Not telling the truth, it's deception. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You are lying. You weren't telling the truth. You're manipulating the king. Now let's see what happens. Saul calls the priest to Gibeah. Now, if you're going to look at this section, I want you to realize, before we go in here, sometimes you put a rating on a movie, and there's an R-rated movie. Well, this would be an R-rated section of the Bible. Maybe an X-rated section if you actually had this one in pictures. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. This is not good. Saul is summoning, summoning not just Ahimelech, but every priest in the city of Nob. They know about Saul's moodiness. They know about his propensity for violence, and this is not a good thing. Saul said, Hear now, son of a high tub. There goes the insult part again. Not calling him by his actual name. Hear now, you little twerp. Now, by the way, Ahimelech is not a little twerp. He is the high priest in the land. After the king, the second most important person in the land is Ahimelech. So calling him a little twerp is not a good thing. Now, while Ahimelech is insulted, he doesn't return an insult to the king. He simply says, and he answered, here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me, and here it is again, to lie in wait as at this day. Saul accuses Ahimelech of joining David in a conspiracy to assassinate him and to overthrow the kingdom. And Saul's servants obviously know how pointless it is to reason with him at this point. They just stay away from him. They avoid him. But Ahimelech apparently doesn't know the king that well. So he actually tries to reason with him and he's in, in, when he's in this paranoid, delusional state of mind, which is not a good idea. Look what Ahimelech says. Then Ahimelech answered the king, like, Who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and the captain over your own bodyguard? 
and honored in your house. And him like is dumbfounded. He's like, what are you talking about? There is nobody in your house more faithful to you than David. Let me stop there. We know that he has made a dozen attempts or more on David's life. But what is David's reputation working for a terrible boss? Faithful. Faithful. Faithful even to King Saul. Boy, let me think about that for you and me. Do you have a tough boss? You have a difficult place to work? I guarantee your boss isn't trying to take your life a dozen times. But how is your reputation as you work for that boss? If your name is brought up and they said you were doing something wrong, would the people around you say, no, no way. He is so faithful. He is such a good employee. He is so true. What a challenge to be faithful in a difficult work environment like David was to Saul, because that is the ultimate in difficult work environments. Not only that, but he's the king's son-in-law, captain over your bodyguard. He's the head of Saul's personal secret service to guard the king. So why would it be against you and lying in wait for you? And who is more honored than David? By the way, if you, um, let me mention one other quick thing. Today, in our culture, we have this thing called quiet quitting. Have you guys read about that? This is popular with the younger culture. It's like you just go to work, you get your job done, you do your job, but you don't actually put your heart into your job anymore. You're not really known for being faithful in work and going above and beyond the duty in work. You're just getting a paycheck. David was not a quiet quitter. Even in a tough work environment, he was not a quiet quitter. As Christians, we are called to be distinctive and different from the world. We're not called to be quiet quitters. Christians are not quiet quitters. We do our best for the Lord, even if our boss is difficult like David. Colossians 3.23, another great memory verse. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now, let's talk about this one little piece of information that's been hanging out there. We've heard that the charge of Doeg was that David had asked Ahimelech to inquire of God for him. We didn't hear that in the previous chapter. We hear it in this chapter. This is what it says next. Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Now this part in the beginning here, where it says, is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Um, This is actually a little difficult section in the Hebrew to translate. It could be translated like the ESV translates it for us, meaning, is this the first time I've inquired of God for him? No. Or it could be translated as, um, David has never asked me to inquire of God for him. Why should I start now? Now, I'm going to tell you, I, I think and I may be wrong, but I'm just going to tell you what I think. I think that the alternate translation here, which I read about in a number of scholarly works, is actually the better translation than the one you see in the ESV. He's saying, I have never inquired of God for him. I like this idea of should he overthrow the king or not. 
And he continues, I don't know anything about this or what you are talking about. I don't know anything about any kind of conspiracy theories. I'm completely ignorant of this because that's what he says. Well, the king knows he actually needs more than one eyewitness. He doesn't listen to that. He's heard Ahimelech's defense. He doesn't listen to that either. He just jumps to the execution. The king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. I'm going to genocide the entire priestly family. All of you are going to die here and now. Obviously, Saul's pretty worked up. Now, this is not the first time Saul has, in his rage, uh, made a command that is really way over the top. I mean, we've probably done those kind of things with our kids, you know. You tell them 12 times to be quiet, and then you, finally you're grounding them for one day. By the time you're done telling them you know, they're grounded through high school, you know, because we've gotten over the top in our you know, anger. That's what Saul's done. But the last time this happened, he, it was... Um, he threatened to kill his own son. Remember the battle of Michmash where Saul had made some kind of silly oath that nobody could have anything to eat till the sun set. Jonathan, his own son, never heard the oath and he touched the tip of his spear into a little honey and tasted it with his mouth. And when Saul heard about that, he said, oh, my son shall surely die. I was like, what? He never even knew what you said. And the army stood up and protected Jonathan. Now here we have another time this time Saul is trying to genocide the high priest and his family. Will the army stand up and protect them? Will the army disobey the king? Let's find out. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Now notice it starts with, he talks to the guard next to him. Kill the priests. But the guard won't do it. By the time it gets to the end, but the servants of the king wouldn't do it. It's a general term. So he's like, you, kill the priest. Nope, won't do it. Well, you, you kill the priest. Nope, not going to do it. Next guy, will you kill the priest? Nope, not going to do it. He's like completely powerless because his own army won't even listen to his commands to do this great evil of destroying the priests. I thought to myself, man, we like to sometimes have a negative view on Saul and his kingdom. But here I think we need to have a positive view on the men that worked for him. They stood up to the king for what they knew was an evil order. They knew that by standing up to him, it could be next week their head on the chopping block with that homicidal maniac on the throne. And this is an application here. When we refuse to participate in Senate work, be prepared that it may cost us our work. And that's what they did. Now, it continues. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox and donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. Nobody who was his servants and his army around him would help him. 
but one person would. Doek, that evil man who was manipulating Saul's heart. And as soon as he asked Doeg to do it, he said, I'm happy to obey the command. Can you picture the blood of 85 men in front of Saul being slaughtered by the sword? The blood was everywhere. It was disgusting. And Doeg doesn't stop there. He traveled the two miles from Gibeah to Nob, and he killed their wives, he killed all their children. He killed all their animals. And when he was done, there was not even the sound of a dog left to bark in the entire city. He went way beyond what Saul had even commanded. But Saul had done absolutely nothing to stop him. Doeg was a true Edomite, an enemy of God's people, an antichrist, <laughs> before we have officially identified the Antichrist. But I want you to pause and think about something. Look at Saul. First Samuel chapter 11, he was anointed the king of God's people. And he was ruling and doing well. But eventually he refused to repent of his sin and he stayed in that continual point of unrepentance, continuing to harden his heart. And it got worse and his mind became more twisted and then he became somebody who attempted murder again and again. And look how much it's influenced him. From 1 Samuel chapter 11 to 1 Samuel 22, we have him going from the anointed king of God to an antichrist who essentially is in charge of killing all of the priests and their family of the people of God. What an incredible warning about the danger of holding on to sin in our life and not repenting of that sin and calling out to God for forgiveness. Look how sin can change a person and how it can destroy a person. There's a little footnote I should cover here briefly. While this is a terrible tragedy and Saul is completely responsible for it, along with Doeg who manipulated him, uh, this doesn't mean that God's plans and purposes were thwarted by sin. God is much bigger than sin. He is not the author of sin, but he can still take and use sin towards his purposes. Uh, if you're following along, here's a point for you. When people are while people are responsible for their sinful choices, God is bigger than sin. God can take the sin done to us and the sin done by us and use it to accomplish his good purposes. This is why we do not lose hope. Let me show you how God is using this. Earlier in this book, actually in chapter 2, we read this. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that, you, that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever, the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar, shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die, what? By the sword of men. This prophecy was taking place. It was talking about Hophni and Phinehas. Remember those guys from our study earlier? 
the sons of Eli the priest, Hophni and Phinehas, who were sleeping with the women who worked at the temple, who were stealing people's offerings and eating it for themselves. And God pronounced the judgment that ultimately, because of that, their family line would be one day cut off. It would be cut off with a sword, and there'd only be one person in your family left to weep his eyes out. Now, folks, this is exactly what happened. Because if we go down and look at the next verse, we find this. There is one person who escaped from the city of Nob, a man named Abiathar. He escaped and was protected by David. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Incidentally, in the Hebrew, the word killed here is especially a graphic word. It's not the normal word for killed, it's butchered. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. David says, the reason your family died is because of my sin. I occasioned the death of your family. You stay with me and I will protect you. In Hebrew, it literally says, the only way he's going to get to you is by going over my body. (laughs) I'm protecting you with my very life. Now, there's an interesting thing here. When this chapter began, David was in a hole, in a cave, finally got to the end of trusting in his lies, trusting in worldly strategies, trusting in his own plans. God, you're the one who's going to have to fulfill your purposes for me. But by the chapter ends, God has been doing that. The balance of power is switching. Now, David has 400 men with him. He's not alone. David has the prophet of God, Gad, with him. And all the priests that are in the entire nation have just left following Saul and they're all following David and the one person left from the high priest's family is in David's camp. Prophet, priest, and king have all gone to David's side. Now there are a couple other things I should say in my way of application here. What the scriptures want us to do in this chapter is to contrast Saul and contrast David. This is important. This chapter shows us the danger of sin. Saul shows us that continuing in sin can lead us to do things we never thought we could do. Saul went from the chosen king of Israel to an antichrist figure that attempted to genocide the priestly family of God because he was consumed by hatred and jealousy and never repented. The danger of sin, if we continue in it, it'll take us to places we never wanted to go and lead us to things we never wanted to do. Secondly, David shows us how our sin affects others. David's lies to Ahimelech contributed to the death of almost all of his family but one person. Folks, sin does not stay in a box. When we sin, it's always true that other people will suffer. That's what happened. David sinned, Ahimelech and his family suffered. 
There's also another lesson here. This chapter shows us how to respond to sin. Notice David owned his sin and he took responsibility to help those hurt by his sin. Abiathar, I am going to protect you with my life. Saul was the opposite. Saul blamed others for his sin and then he made others suffer for the sinfulness of his own heart. Folks, how do we handle our sin? Do we blame on other people and then make others suffer because of our own sinfulness? Or do we take it like David? I want to own my sin and I'm going to protect and help those I've hurt with my sin. How do we handle our sin? And the last thing is this. Just as David protected Abiathar from Saul's unjust wrath by by the guarantee of his life, folks, Jesus protects us from God the Father's fully justified wrath against our sin by giving his life. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for how we could see how you have begun to raise David up and and put Saul down. And you've been begun to fulfill your purposes for him. And David has not done anything to bring it about, but trust in you. Thank you also for the contrast we see between David and Saul in this chapter about how Saul handled his sin by making others suffer and never owning it. But David owned his sin and he protected others who were hurt by his sin. May we be men and women like that, quick to own our sin and quick to help others we may have hurt. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.